There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Pregnancy is an exciting time full of hope and wonder and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever. And for victims of fetal abduction in the United States, their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series, we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America, from the highly publicized cases to the little known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. This episode is the second in a series that is profiling cold cases around the United States. The next three cases you will hear about are all unsolved murders from Portland, Oregon. Portland also happened to be the setting of my previous episode about Kendra James, so you're getting back-to-back Oregon cases. Oregon itself has a lower-than-average murder rate when compared to the rest of the United States, but the Portland Police Bureau has well over 100 unsolved murders listed on their website. Experts don't know exactly why Oregon falls well below the national average, but they do point to a variety of socioeconomic factors that could influence why Oregonians are less likely to be murdered. According to Project Cold Case's analysis of the FBI's Uniform Crime Report between 1980 and 2008, Oregon saw 3,268 homicides and had a clearance rate of 64%. Of the homicides committed in this period, 1,189 homicides remain unsolved. These figures don't account for homicides committed before 1980, and two of the cases that we will cover in this episode precede this data. Our first case takes us back to the early 1970s. On Saturday, September 8, 1973, a man named Roy Jernigan arrived at his ex, Dolores Thompson's home in North Portland to pick up his two-and-a-half-year-old son. 
When he arrived at the front door, he was troubled to see that it was slightly ajar. He pushed open the door and discovered the body of a woman who had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death. He recognized the woman as Dolores' friend, Gwendolyn. The shocking and gruesome discovery caused immediate concern for his son and his ex, who were not in the room. Upon searching the house, Roy found his son in a bedroom, alive and unharmed, lying near the body of a second woman, who was his ex and the mother of his child, Dolores. She also had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death. The two women found in the house were 21-year-old Gwendolyn Fulsey and 27-year-old Dolores Thompson. The home they were found in belonged to Dolores and her son, and Dolores had two additional children who were not present when the murders occurred. According to their families, Dolores and Gwendolyn were best friends. Gwendolyn was a student at Portland Beauty College, and her mother described her as a regular churchgoer. Dolores had three very young children who were suddenly and tragically robbed of their mother. Gwendolyn's mother told reporters in 1973 that she had gone to Dolores' house on Friday night to spend the night. The Portland Police Bureau have indicated that they interviewed many people at the time of the murders, but they failed to find any meaningful leads or establish a motive or any possible suspects. Both women were determined to have been stabbed in the neck and hit in the head, most likely with a hammer. Aside from the few news articles that were written when the news broke in 1973, there was a follow-up written in 2011, 38 years after the murders. This article interviewed Dolores' sister and her two children who were not home when she was murdered. Her son was seven and her daughter was even younger, and they both discussed what it was like to have their mother taken from them when they were so young. They only have a few memories of their mother and their siblings altogether, with her son saying, The last memory I have of her was two caskets. How would you feel if your mother didn't make it to 30? If your mother didn't make it to 30? They took my mother away from me. They also described how hard it has been living so many years without her and without any answers or closure, with her daughter saying, During anniversaries and birthdays and Mother's Day, I go through my withdrawals from the family. In the same 2011 article, the police detective assigned to the case said that forensic evidence was being re-evaluated using technology that wasn't available in the 1970s. They also reiterated the request for anyone who might have had any information to come forward. But despite these efforts, this case has remained unsolved. This case was interesting to me because there is so little information available, but it seems like a case that could be solved if more attention and resources could be dedicated to the investigation. If you or anyone you know has any information about this case, you're encouraged to reach out to Crime Stoppers at 503-823-4357. At the time of this recording, Gwendolyn and Dolores have gone 46 years without their murderer being brought to justice. Our next case takes us to Southeast Portland in the summer of 2001. On August 10, 2001, a man was up in the early morning hours working on his computer. The silence in the neighborhood was suddenly broken by what sounded to him like a gunshot. 
Not 100% sure what he heard, he made note of the time, 4.20 a.m., and suddenly he heard more commotion coming from his neighbor's house. Someone was screaming, which was causing the neighborhood dogs to bark, but through the noise he could make out someone yelling to call 911. Emergency personnel responded to the home of Gail Hofert after receiving a report that someone had been attacked inside her home. Gail lived there with her roommate Diane, her niece Leanna, and her nephew Joshua, who she also had legal guardianship over. Her daughter lived in a camper in the backyard on the property, separate from the home. EMTs entered the house and found her 11-year-old nephew Joshua unconscious on her bedroom floor. According to Gail, she was woken up to Joshua running into her room and telling her that someone had come into his room before collapsing on the floor. He had been shot one time and was transported to the hospital where he was later pronounced dead. The investigation started right away. It was determined that Joshua was shot in his bed while he slept. He ran into his aunt's room for help and collapsed in her doorway. And according to Gail, Joshua's voice didn't sound strange or panicked when he announced that someone had come into his room. If he hadn't collapsed immediately afterwards, she may not have realized that anything was wrong. In fact, it wasn't until she turned on the light that she realized that he was bleeding. No one else in the house was awake or heard anything unusual. Gail's daughter, who was sleeping in the camper in the backyard, was not awoken either. Now, it was just before 4.30 in the morning, so it is unlikely that many people would be out and about in their neighborhood, but even neighbors noted that their dogs did not alert to a stranger's presence. Whoever attacked Joshua managed to slip in and out of the house without being seen. The occupants of the house did say that there were two accessible entrances to the home. The front screen door was closed but unlocked. The back door was left open to allow their own dogs to go in and out of the house at night. And since it was a hot summer day, having both doors open allowed for the night air to cool down the house. It is believed that Gail's dogs didn't alert to anyone being in the home because they were asleep on the floor of her room. Joshua's room was converted from the laundry room and it had immediate access to the back door, and it was on the far other side of the house from where Gail was sleeping. The previous day had been just like any other. No one who lived in the house remembered anything out of the ordinary happening. Gail said that she and Joshua had dinner and got ready for bed like any other day, and they said their goodnights and went to sleep and that was the last time she saw Joshua before he rushed into her room. 11-year-old Joshua was about to start the 7th grade when he was killed in August 2001. His aunt and his teachers said that he was a well-behaved child who was never in any trouble. He had plenty of friends and no known issues among his peers. He was reportedly quite responsible for his age and came home at 5.45 every afternoon to check in and eat dinner with the family. Gail had given him a watch with a reminder set to beep at 5.45 every day. After Joshua's death, Gail saved the watch and hung it on the rear view mirror of her car, and she saved the daily reminder to come home for dinner. 
According to Gail, Joshua frequently told her that when he grew up, he was going to buy her a house and take care of her, the same way that she had taken care of him. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Portland Police Bureau tried to follow the few leads that they had, but quickly ran into a dead end. With no usable forensic evidence left behind at the scene, and no known family or acquaintance issues, investigators were forced to wait and hope that someone would come forward with information. Unfortunately, that has not happened. In a 2016 article revisiting the case... Portland Police Bureau Detective Hopper held out hope that a break in the case was possible, saying, The person that committed this crime has, I believe, told other people, and it's just very important to give the family closure, particularly in this heinous crime. Joshua's Aunt Gail never gave up hope that one day they would find out who killed her nephew. In a 2014 article, she was quoted saying, It's not fair. Joshua didn't deserve this. Joshua was a good boy. I think Josh would rest easier. I think I would rest easier. So I just want to get this over with, and I want this person taken care of. This is ridiculous, and this isn't fair. Tragically, Gail died in 2015 without knowing who killed her nephew. If you or anyone you know has any information about the death of Joshua Jeffries, you are encouraged to contact the Cold Case Homicide Unit investigators directly at 503-823-0400. To remain anonymous, witnesses may also provide information through Crime Stoppers of Oregon by calling 503-823-4357. At the time of this recording, Joshua has gone 18 years without his murderer being brought to justice seven years longer than the entire time he was alive. Our last case this episode also occurred in the 1970s. 17-year-old Sharon Ryan was a senior in high school in December of 1976. She was the youngest of eight children and an active member of her school's drama club and an accomplished dancer. She resided in the northeast neighborhood of Portland with her family. On December 16th, she was making cookies with her sister at her sister's apartment. When she realized that they were short on eggs, Sharon decided that she would run to the grocery store just a couple blocks away. Sharon told her sister that she would come right back and left the house around 8 p.m. 
After 30 minutes, Sharon had not come back. The trip to the store and back should have taken mere minutes, and Sharon had been gone for nearly half an hour. Immediately, Sharon's sister and her husband began searching the neighborhood for any sign of Sharon. Although she was gone much longer than expected, there were endless possibilities as to why she had not returned on time. After an hour and a half of searching their neighborhood, her sister and brother-in-law found no sign of her, and they decided to immediately file a missing persons report. They said that Sharon was only 17 years old and has never disappeared for hours at a time or gone anywhere without telling her family where she was going. No one heard from Sharon for the rest of the night or the following day. On December 18th, Sharon's family and friends organized a search party to continue to look for any sign of her in the neighborhood. While a friend was searching a parking lot near Sharon's sister's apartment, she found an empty egg carton and several broken eggs. Following the trail of eggshells to an isolated, overgrown corner of the parking lot, searchers found Sharon's body. Whoever killed her had covered her with plants in an attempt to conceal her body. Investigators determined that she had made her purchase at the store, hence the egg carton found at the scene. Sharon's cause of death was strangulation, and she was sexually assaulted. News quickly spread of Sharon's murder. Her high school drama and dance teacher highlighted her immense talent that she had shown from a young age. Sharon's mother had put her in dance classes when she was eight years old, and she practiced throughout high school. After spending her high school years as a top performer in their dance department, Sharon had planned to attend NYU's performing arts school with the ultimate goal of becoming a professional dancer. And she was murdered just months shy of moving to New York. Unlike the other cases discussed in this episode, the initial investigation immediately showed promise. On Thursday, December 30th, 1976, a man named Robert Ernest Wood was arrested for the rape and murder of Sharon Ryan. The 24-year-old man was a janitor at a local pool hall and had visited the same store as Sharon around the same time. When the Portland Police Bureau announced that they had made an arrest, they said that Wood had been under surveillance by the police for several days leading up to his detainment. The Portland Police Bureau did not say why he was a suspect, but they did make a public appeal for an unidentified caller who had previously contacted them with information to reach out again. Investigators didn't provide more information other than to say that this person provided information that led to the arrest. Robert Wood was born in Idaho, and he served in the United States military before being discharged. He had only worked at the local pool hall for a couple of months before his arrest and had only lived in Portland for a little over a year. Despite both Sharon and Wood being locals, there is not any information to indicate that they knew each other. The next day, December 31st, Robert Wood was formally charged with one count of murder and one count of rape. His trial began in late February 1977 and lasted for seven days. Wood's defense rested on the timing of the murder. Initially, it was believed that Sharon left the house around 8 p.m. to head to the store. Later, that time was revised down to 7.35. 
Wood said that he arrived home just before 8 p.m. in time to watch the Dick Van Dyke show with his mother. According to Wood's statement and Sharon's sister's statement, the overlap in the timeline only had a 5-10 to minute window where the murder could have occurred. The prosecution believed that there was enough time for Wood to commit the crime, while the defense maintained that it was impossible. Wood did visit the same store that evening, but he believed that he left there around 7.20, which is 15 minutes before Sharon left her sister's house. The jury of eight women and four men deliberated for less than three hours before reaching an 11-to-1 verdict of not guilty. After Wood was cleared at trial, Sharon's case went cold. It has been periodically revisited over the years, but no new leads have been publicly pursued by law enforcement. If you or anyone you know have any information regarding the murder of Sharon Ryan, you're encouraged to contact the Cold Case Homicide Unit investigators directly. Their number is 503-823-0400. At the time of this recording, Sharon has gone 43 years without her murderer being brought to justice. And that wraps up the show this week. Thank you for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to source material and further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think. You can share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at misconductpod. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatching app. Positive feedback helps the show grow. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, please submit it through the case submission tab on my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Again, if you or anyone you know have any information regarding the murders of Gwendolyn Fulce and Dolores Thompson in 1973, Joshua Jeffries in 2001, or Sharon Ryan in 1976, you are encouraged to contact the Cold Case Homicide Unit at 503-823-0400. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can contact the Crime Stoppers of Oregon by calling 503-823-4357. In addition to the phone options, the Portland Police Bureau also has an online tip submission form, which will be linked on the website and in the show notes.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.